0: One of the things I love about this podcast is how open and willing the guests are to sit with me in some pretty tough and some pretty important conversations. And this conversation with Chum Paliapola stayed with me long after we had finished. We went deep very early and stayed exploring living in war times, decisions to immigrate, the raw face of racism and making it a world of screen and acting where we still have a long way to go in terms of diversity. My name's Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness, the uncertainty and the changes of our world. Having walked away from the engineering career to follow his passion for acting, Chum's television credits include The Straits, Sea Patrol, Laid, All Saints and most recently The Newsreader which was awarded Actor Award for the Best Australian Drama. Chum has performed in numerous films that have had the honour of playing at festivals such as Cannes, Sundance and Sydney Film Festival. Chum also will star in a Disney Plus series, Nautilus, set to release in the second half of 2023. In this conversation, we dive into Chum's career, navigating Hollywood and the importance of diversity on our screens, as well as his decision to live with his family in the country. I loved everything about this conversation and there's every chance that you will too. So enjoy the depth that is Chum Aliapola. Chum, it's such a delight to be chatting with you.
1: Yeah, you too. I'm so excited when I um, knew I had the chance to chat to you. Um, I love your work. I love your podcast. It's great.
0: You were born in New Zealand, raised in both Wartorn, Sri Lanka and Perth, Australia. Tell me your story.
1: Do you have 10 hours? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, weirdly, I have, like, maybe for self-preservation, blanked and forgotten a lot of it. And my wife keeps going, babe, that could not have happened in 87. You were here. And I'm like, really? (laughs) Because um, it was kind of a bit of a cluster F, you know? Like, we were in New Mm -hmm. Zealand because the war was in Sri Lanka and things were going on and mum knew she wanted to get out, so did dad. But dad was working pretty high up in the government, in the agricultural department. So, you know, it's never a good place to be in a country that's got a civil war where your dad works for the government as a high position. So we ended up in New Zealand. My mum got a job as a nurse in um, Dunedin. My dad was there. I was born and my dad was working in rice cultivation. And I think he was just like, this place is too cold, dude. We come from the tropical island near the equator. What are we doing here? And mum was like, agreed, let's get out of here.
0: (laughs) I love that the options were war-torn, get out of the cold. (laughs)
1: I can handle that. Can't handle the cold. And then we got to to, to Sri Lanka. So then we went, yeah. Then then um, we did Sri Lanka? Then I think we went back to Australia because my brother and sister were born. See, I can't remember. I can't remember. Mm. I, don't I don't know Went back there. My brother and sister were born. Then we did come back to Sri Lanka again. Then I think, yeah. Then the war was definitely well and truly underway. You know, like it was happening. And that's when Mum and Dad were like, "We got to get out because there's just like." suicide bombers everywhere Mm -hmm. and it was just the energy of the place you know you just like I remember I was in a place called Trinity College and you know my mum would drop me off and she would drive in and there's this beautiful little shop there where mum would pull up and the shopkeeper would walk out and stick her head and go what do you want and mum would give her the order and she'd stay there and he'd just come back and give it to her and we're like great then one day we went there and the shop was literally not there it was gone and I'm like Mm -hmm. what? Mom's eyes just teared up and just drove off and I was like what's going on here and I saw you know war and I heard bombs and we had to do duck and covers and we're kind of like holding on to bars inside houses just um and I was like year one you know and weirdly blanked a lot of it out especially when you live with such privilege here that I'm like why would I even want to remember any of that look at look at the privilege I have here but I think now I'm slowly, like, having to bring it up or deal with it and my kids are asking questions about who we are, why is our skin different to people here, well, you know. What is... mm-hmm. But I think, you know, my mum and dad were amazing because they were just like, okay, we're going to get out. And, you know, like, we had privilege. If you follow the caste system in Sri Lanka, our mm-hmm. surname affords us a lot of privilege via caste, right? So we had quite a lot that way. And Mum and dad walked away from it all and just came here And they came like around the early 80s and in Perth. And that was a racist, did not accept immigrants. And so poor mum and dad went from this thing to like running a quickie mart kind of thing, you know, and you're just like from nothing, they kind of like just built themselves up to this.
0: It's so interesting as you say that some of it also through the eyes of kids, it just is what it is and you just get on with each day, right? But now that you are a parent, do you have a sense of what that decision and those decisions, it's not just one, was like for your parents? Oh,
1: my God, Ali,
0: completely, completely. Mm.
1: Prior to COVID, I was living in Los Angeles, right, my wife, and when we was working in Hollywood. And we had both our kids in America, right, because, you know, we were like dual citizenship, how, how great for them. But, oh, my God, it was just us two in a foreign land, you know, trying to get our head wrapped around health insurance you know, what do you do when your kid starts crying and freaking out? You got no mum to call, no dad to call, no cousins or sisters or aunties, uncles to go and drop over just on Google doctor freaking out. And, and those times again living in another country because you want something better, but you just want to go back to like quote-unquote home. Mm. But you've left home for a reason because it doesn't serve you anymore. And just the loneliness, the isolation you can feel, even in a place like L.A., and for mum and dad, a place like Australia, which how could anyone think you could feel alone in a place like that? But loneliness doesn't mean the number of people around you, you know, the service you have afforded to you, it's where you feel home. So I feel it all the time. And I think I even told my mum and dad, I was like, I get now what you did. I never would have got it. Cause most of us grow up in a place like this, we're like, I've got everything until I die. I'm just going to stay in my comfort zone and just stay here. This is perfect. Mm. Which is why when I hear all this rhetoric around immigration in Australia and, you know, like we're going to kick them back and this, you know, what's happening in America, you know, like we're under attack and you're just like, bro, shut up. You, under attack? These are just humans that are looking for a better life. And my mum and dad did that. Um, front door, back door, side door, you know what I mean? Like some people can afford the flight, others can't. And that's just, you know, some people know how to get a visa and others
0: can't. There are human stories that are attached to all of them and I think also what's coming up for me as I hear your kind of almost your parents' story is there's no easy decision. So part of me going, of course you would leave a war-torn area. Absolutely. But we don't often talk about the fact that you're also leaving a community, you're also leaving a place of belonging. Again, even where you kind of describe the caste system to than it being at mart in a racist town and <laughs> experiencing that. That's really brutal from an experience.
1: Yeah, like you said, if you're listening, you sit there and go, what if right now I left everything I know because I had to, right? Not because I'm like, I've got a privileged position to go on a holiday or I've got a promotion for my mm. job. I'm going to go check out what to live in Italy. You're like, oh, shit, we could die. So all your comfort you have right now, you're like, gone. And you never know if you're ever going to see it again. And then wherever you go, you get treated like you're a second class kind of like piece of shit. What are you doing here? How displaced would you feel? Mm. God, what it takes to leave, you know, what it takes to leave your community. Like this is nowhere near as close to, to this example. But, you know, living in L.A., my career was great. You know, we we're working and we we're doing really good. The kids from school and it was, life was starting to look good. Then COVID happened. And it was a repatriation flight. So it was the only way you can get out of America, get to Australia. And it's a one-way flight. And my wife and I were kind of like, well, this is home. We're about to walk. But we don't know what's happening in America. And at the time, America was a scary place because they didn't have their shit together like Australia did around COVID and borders. It was just like a wild, wild west. Democratic friends of mine were buying guns just in case Mm
0: -hmm. they were getting
1: attacked. And you're just like... You know, my kids were asleep and all of a sudden my son's like, Daddy, I can't sleep. I'm like, why not? It's like the helicopters. And I was like, oh my God. And that was the Black Lives Matter riots and we were up the road and the cop choppers flying around. I'm just like, this is weird. And then finally for Marty, it was just all the, the school shootings and the stuff like that. So started to go, man, well, we have community. We have all these greatness, but you gotta walk Korea. away. Korea. Korea, yeah. you know, like a soulful place. And as I said, I'm not at all saying it's the same thing as a war-torn country, whatever. But seeing little pockets of that in my life, I start to understand and also just what it does to your mental health and kind of what it does to you as a human because we expect kind of immigrants to turn up and just like that snap into society and be a fully functioning person, you know, and if you're not, how dare you? And it's like, do you understand just the trauma of leaving everything you know and the people you know and love Mm. and to try and start again in a place where you feel like an alien?
0: What has been your experience from that kind of mental health perspective? Because I think human beings have this way when you're in a crisis, you deal with it, you get practical, you do the steps. And it's almost like we put the mental side of the trauma on a shelf for a little while because of survival. And at some point, I don't think we talk about that enough, eh, across the board. But what was your lived experience of that from a COVID experience coming from LA back to Australia? Mentally, how did you navigate that from a mental well-being perspective? Oh,
1: I have therapy. I'm proud to say it. As a man, I have therapy. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, the analogy is like, oh, right, if you break your arm, what are you going to do, not go see a doctor because you're embarrassed? You know what I mean? You're going to go see a doctor because your arm is broken and you can't use your arm. Yet I think the biggest, most important muscle we have in our human body is our brain, our mind. The psychology of that. And if you, we don't get help, coaching, treatment, a mind massage, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of what I call therapy, it's a mind massage. When you're stressed, you go get a massage, right? But when you're stressed in your head, who's going to massage your brain for you? And so mm. when I get therapy and I listen to intelligent podcasts around psychology and following innovative thinkers who are like, you know, from sports people to inventors, anyone that's sitting in an elite position. How do you deal with this stuff? And, you know, when I hear your podcast and just seeing how deep you go with your people, to me that's just inspiring because, you know, back to the Sri Lanka thing, you know, we're raised in villages in Sri Lanka. We don't have a house and we don't know our neighbours. There's no fences where we are, right? We all know that if I am rude to my uncle, I'm going to get the same discipline from him as I am from my dad. It's no different. And so the village raises everyone. So your mum, your dad, everyone has a chance to rest and reprieve. Everyone treats everyone's cousins and act as if they're your parents. So this is beautiful um, sharing of knowledge. everyone shares knowledge. Whereas here, you know, you don't necessarily share knowledge from experience. We kind of like, hope you don't mind. I'm going to give you some advice. No, don't tell me anything. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, or, or embarrassed to take your advice. I'm a pretty good parent. Sri Lanka's not that no one's trying to thinking you're good or bad. It's just like, I've seen it. I reckon we do this. Okay, let's try it. Because we're all parents. Mm-hmm. And so for my mental health, I try and like talk to a lot of people. I think acting's a wonderful profession because we have to be in touch with our emotions to do our job properly. Like my job as an actor, isn't to say lines. It is to be a master of my emotions. It is to be a master of the psychology in my mind so I can become another person and understand their psychology, how they work. I might be a very stoic man, but my character is a super vulnerable, gorgeously emotionally available person. But I chum am not. How do I play that person? I have Mm. to go and do the work like a tennis player has to work on their forehand I've got to work on the psychology of my mind and therapy, open conversation. My wife and I have beautiful dialogue. She works in the life coaching space. We're constantly talking in this kind of world and doing acting is really, really, really helps. And I remember we are shooting Nautilus in, in Queensland and amazing diverse cast and all of us were the lead of a Disney show. So it's kind of like an interesting position for the diverse group of actors to be the lead of one of the biggest shows in the world. <laughs> you don't see it very often in Australia.
0: In the Gold
1: Coast, <laughs> the widest places.
0: Not on the Gold Coast.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so uh, we all had pretty interesting collective experiences. But I'll tell you what, Ali, when we sat down at a basketball court shooting or hanging out drinking beers, what we chatted about is deep stuff around our own mental mind state, our own well-being, our own vulnerabilities, our insecurities And as actors, we're not therapists. We're not here to give each other advice. We're just here to hear it, you know, and we would hear each other and just ability to be heard without even being told what to do, just
0: hearing. Having that safe space to voice the things in our head, what we're thinking with kind of no fear of judgement is such a gift and that ability to kind of sit in that space. But certainly, whenever I've been in those kinds of spaces, it's almost like I'm blown away by we have more in common than we <laughs> think, than not in common. When you get to that level, we're all worried about our kids and their futures, regardless of skin tone or background or cultural perspectives. You know
1: what? Like, and we all think we're shit parents. You know, like we yeah. all do, no matter how much you think someone's driving their Porsche SUV or they've got, you know, they're sitting as a CEO of a company and we all think, oh, they must have it together. And then when you cut through all the BS, you all realise that, like, you know, we're all insecure. We all feel like maybe we're not doing our best, we're making mistakes. But if you feel that you're the only one because we don't talk about it, then how do you mm. find the endorphins, the power to wake up and feel like I can do something today when you feel like you're the only one of everyone around you that's messed up because we're not talking to each other.
0: Absolutely. For men, it's so important to have examples but also to have those spaces. It's very, I'm going to say, stereotypically Australian that that happens at the pub or around a few beers occasionally, (laughs) once every 10 years, (laughs) and that's about it. But there are other ways. It's so fascinating where you talk about the role of acting that being the critical place to need to master your emotions in order to embody, to live into and to step into another character. And I would imagine it's not a role that you can only do on the days that you personally feel good emotionally. <laughs> you can't go, nut, just not feeling it today. Everyone yeah, goes, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. we do this tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> do you have any practical things that help you in a moment if you're Tired, maybe uh-huh. <laughs> motivation is down or low, but you know you need to turn up for a scene, a role uh, for your colleagues. Are there practical things that you that you yeah, do? Yeah,
1: definitely are. You know, there's different schools of acting, right? So some people are very um technical and, and theoretical, right? So it's about the preparation. It's what you've done the night before, right? then there's another form of acting which is that kind of instinctive idea right where it's like well don't do much work because then all the magic is already done in your rehearsal right what you want to do now is explore this idea for the first time when the camera's on because that's the first time and the first time of anything is the most magical moment then while the time you've done it for the eighth time a lot of the magic's gone and both have mm-hmm. their pros and cons I think I lean more towards the latter one right I didn't go to drama school I didn't train I didn't do any of that I went to Curtin University in Perth and studied civil engineering and graduated as a civil engineer and went, what have I done with my life? i (laughs) got to go to Sydney and wait tables and do short courses in acting because this is actually what I wanted to do with my life. But I also wanted to honour my parents for the sacrifice they made. And I know my Mm. dad was just like, as long as you're an engineer, I feel like this is all worth it because if it all goes to shit, you can go to the mines (laughs) and work as an engineer. <laughs> I'm there, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> but I did it. And so to answer your question, one of the things I love to do as a human, which I do because it helps me in exactly this situation you said, is knowing how to drop all the noise around you and just stay with someone in front of you as if they are the most important person in the world. So if you're having the most intense discussion with your husband or wife, and let's assume it's a breakup, right? You're not thinking about, oh, what am I going to do tomorrow morning? I'm, you know, like, I'm going to get coffee. I'm going to text my friend. I'm going to pay this bill. It's all gone. Everything is left. And you are with this person. Just like if you're having one of those DNM sessions with your bestie. And it's like, this has gone for hours. Why? Because you've forgotten about all the other shit you've got to do. You've just connected to this person. And one minute feels like 18 hours. That's actually an acting technique to be able to completely drop. And so when I'm, I can't be bothered, I'm tired, I'm over it. Look, I'll give you an example of that, okay? I was living in LA and got a call from the ABC about Stateless, which was Kate Banchett's amazing show around refugees. And they're like, we want you for a role. And I was like, right, but we need you to go to East Timor. And I was like, right, I just don't know. And it happened really fast. And I kind of kept saying no because I was in LA and it was just a hard thing to work out in the short time span they wanted me. But then, you know, right at the end, I was just like, it's the, the show's amazing. What they're trying to do is amazing. How can I say no to a show like this? So kind of like the 25th hour, I said, yes, let's go. And they were like, get on a plane now. So I literally went to LAX. I don't know how I was in East Timor the next day. But because it was so late, I didn't do a script read. I wasn't on a table read, anything. I was on set starting and I was playing a people smuggler. So I'm jet lagged from all this travel, And now I'm playing a person that is so triggering in my own culture, in my own world. And I'm the villain. So my body has shut down on me. It just went, nah, I'm not going to give it to you. And I remember just going, oh dude, this But then I thought, okay, I'm going to just breathe down and sit there. And as I did that, Ali, it just dropped all the noise of what I thought I couldn't do. And I just sat there. I was like, okay, where is my character? What is my character doing? And sit with this world of these people smuggling. And I was like, right, I'm going to smuggle these people. That's what I'm here to do. And when I cut the noise, I was like, okay, well, then as a human, where do I have to be in my body if I'm okay with smuggling people? That's actually okay with me. With Chum, it's not. It's the most abhorrent thing in the world. But my character is not thinking the way Chum's thinking. But now I'm fatigued from having gone from Los Angeles to East Timor in a day. And it's the climate's hot. We're like sweating. You don't have all the facilities you have when you're shooting in Fox Studios or something, right? And then I remember when I cut all the noise, I looked over and I saw one of the extras. It was a mum holding her baby. And the baby started crying. And the mum wasn't acting, it was offset. And she was just like trying to pack this baby to sleep. And I just went, that's happening for real right now in a camp somewhere that's happening right now for real in the dead of night on a jetty somewhere a mum is trying to keep the baby quiet because they're about to get on a boat and if that baby makes noise while you're trying to get through customs or something like that you know what I mean
0: Mm. and the
1: horrible stories of babies and children who made noise and smuggling and what they do to that family to shut them up kicked in and then all my fatigue left the adrenaline just completely took over and I was like oh okay, I know exactly what I'm here to do. And then the purpose of the character took over the fatigue of the actor or the insecurity of the actor.
0: So true. And, I mean, not even that's a powerful story, and thank you for sharing, but also I'm kind of going when we find purpose, there is energy, right? Like there is more than we we think is kind of possible, and that can be just so meaningful in whatever people who are listening are facing or doing. And I love how you talked about even being an engineer and that's always backstop, probably even now, just <laughs> but doing waiting tables, doing courses in Sydney around this kind of area that obviously kind of lit you up. Was there a performance early on in your life that was one or maybe there was a couple that really kind of lit the fire in you to go, maybe there's a career in this because there's something to go, hey, I'm interested in this, but we never quite know where it's going to go that's different to saying this is something I want to pursue and at least see if it's possible to create a career. Was there was there a moment or a performance or an experience that you had that kind of sparked yeah, that? Yeah, it was
1: high school. You know, I went to a high school in suburban Perth and so I was one of the three brown kids in a 1,500-person school, you know what I mean? And so I was already feeling very alienated, so I didn't really know. And I, I wasn't into AFL like they were, you know, they're all playing Colts and AFL and blah, blah, and that's how you were cool, right? And I was like, no, nah, man, I, I don't play that. Maybe a bit of cricket, but trust me, the cricketers aren't the cool people in, <laughs> in, a, you know, in a government school. But then I started doing dance, and I just, just walked into that dance room and my body just tingled every day for five years. I just remember that tingling feeling. I also remember I'd walk into the room and just strangely, all of my worries just would leave at the door. I'd walk in, I'd just dance. I'd be in my body. I'm with other creative, like-minded artists who kind of like appreciated what a beautiful leap looked like, (laughs) you know? Um, and if I got an extra centimetre on my lip, they were like, wow, that's a, a crew. You found your tribe, right? And then I started doing school plays. And I just remember doing school plays and thinking the stage is my home. I don't feel at home anywhere else in this place. You know what I mean? I feel like an alien. But I got on stage and I just absolutely felt like I found home. And that is when I just was like, I think the stage has to be my life. Like, I think I have to be here because whenever I'm on this stage, because strangely, you just get to be you because you're giving the audience permission to judge you. That's the idea, right, is the audience is paid to look at you from top to bottom. So I'm like, well, I've given you the permission to judge me, so I'm in control of who I am to you. Whereas in school, I'm like, I know you're judging me, but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a brown guy. Like, I know you're going to be weird. Sorry, I eat curry for lunch. I I know you're judging me about that and I haven't given you permission to, but you will. So what do I do? Sorry, I have a weird surname that none of you can say and you're all judging me for it, right? What can I do about that? I, I can do nothing about that. But on the stage, I'm like, yeah, judge me. Judge the shit out of me. I give you permission and I love it because I'm in control of who I get to be and we want adoration. We want eyes of encouragement, of applause. We all want that. You know, I want my wife to look at me and go, well done, for me to say to my wife, well done, cheer my little kids if they do something. We want that as humans. It's in us. And the stage gave me that when I felt that in my life, I wasn't given that. And then when I started following that as far as I could, then it becomes something more than just that. It becomes now the art, the characters, the the exploration of people. But it was high school and also the teachers. I had two amazing teachers George Sakasiris and Bev Dunlop. I'll never forget their names. <laughs> one was my drama teacher, one was my <laughs> dance teacher. And the way they just looked at me, I was like, oh, you, you see the world huge, don't you, for me? You see it yeah. huge for me. And they were like, yeah, because when you dance and act, you light up. And my job is to keep you lit because I'm your teacher. Um, yeah, so that was amazing. Yeah, yeah.
0: Huh those role models, impact of those individuals and their time, their space and their words are really powerful. We touched on before you've been in LA, you've worked in kind of Hollywood. Did you go to Hollywood with a role?
1: I got to a point in Australia where I had worked for everyone and I was saying no to roles because of their ethnic tokenism. That I was just basically being asked to play more tokenistic. I was being used on projects because of kind of like skin colour and blah, 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 and I was like, I can put on an accent, but if you hear my voice, I'm Australian. My voice is Australian, but I'm going to so put on yeah. a fake Indian accent to make you look like I'm a real Indian or Sri Lankan or whatever you want. So I said to my agency, I said, oh, I'm saying no to more gigs and I'm saying yes, this is not where an actor should be. But at the same time, I was getting these amazing auditions out of the States, characters, and I was like, what? This is so cool. And so my agents over here... Mollison Keatley, they started getting me meetings in the US and they said, listen, go do a two-week trip. We've got a bunch of meetings lined up for you and go over there and sign. And so I went over there and, and signed up immediately. And they were like, well, come over. So, you know, when you have an agent and you have a visa, it's a good start. And so then... I went over there and, and that's what took me over was actually the ceiling was just so much higher, right, than here. That's all it was. And I'm the kind of guy that like wants to get to the ceiling as quick as possible. I mean, you know, and I came from a war-torn country. I am so friggin' grateful for everything I have here. I'm not going to waste a minute being lazy around it when people were dying you know? And so when I, I'm like, where's the ceiling? Let me get there. Bang. Okay. I can't get out. I'm either going to crack it or I'm going to find the escape route, you know, and go find the next one. Should I stop sometimes probably? <laughs> Should I rest? <laughs> if you ask my wife, it's like too many ceilings, buddy. But yeah, LA was a challenge. I wanted the challenge.
0: What did you learn about yourself in facing some of those challenges? I mean, aside from just that sheer determination resilience, and I'll find a way, what did you find out about yourself in that environment that might have been different to, to what was available for you at the time in an Australian environment?
1: I actually found how to start becoming really friendly with failure and how to become its best friend. Because, you know, like we're all scared of failure. Failure is the enemy, right? Success is my best friend. I want to be best mates with success. But in LA, I learned the opposite. I was like, success isn't your best friend. You know what I mean? Like, success is a wonderful byproduct. Failure needs to be your best friend because we go around life failing more than we do succeeding, right? Even if you set your alarm and you press your snooze button, well, you failed to get up, right? (laughs) You know?
0: (laughs) Did you wrestle with that? Because I think sometimes, like as you say, it's a good one to learn in hindsight, but right when you're in the moment, when you're being faced with that kind of failure, It's a bloody dogfight and even I'm okay to fail if you tell me how I'm going to fail, when I'm going to do it, as long as it's not going to be too shame-feeling and (laughs) and that people will still like me tomorrow, then I'm okay with it. But (laughs) otherwise, I'm going to fight you for it.
1: Failing within comfortability, you know?
0: Exactly.
1: It was the dogfight of the century. And I think I was already given this kind of subconscious lessons in failure, being a minority in a white town, right? Because I kind of already walked into the situation as a quote-unquote failure, right? I'm like, I'm not going to be the hot guy that the hot high school girl wants to date. I just never am going to be that because no one's looking at me in a school in a white bread WA thinking, oh, there's a quintessential hot Australian guy that I want to date, you know? So I was already knew that I'm like, it's going to be some like someone else. I'm not going to be the guy picked to be the captain of the school sports team. And a lot of these things I knew. So... When I got to LA, I realised, oh, this has nothing to do with this anymore. This is now a conscious failure. Like I've made a choice to be an actor that has nothing to do with the environment. I'm in a completely encouraging environment. I'm just not booking anything, you know, I'm getting told no to everything. I'm sitting here with having not booked a single thing. People around me are booking and and people are getting work and I'm working out how to pay my rent because I'm not making any money. It was such a struggle. I called my agent, right? And I was like, what's going on? And he's like, come on, I'm taking you out for lunch. And he took me out for lunch to a place called the Soho House. If you don't know LA, the Soho House is like this kind of members only joint. It's the best of the best of there. I think he took me there for a reason, right? I'm at the Soho House. I'm sitting there and I'm not even joking. P. Diddy is sitting next to me and Chris Pine is sitting behind me. And they're having their chats. So I'm sitting here and my agent pulls out a list and goes, look at everything we've put you for. And every single huge American TV show, Grey's Anatomy, NCIS, everything was on that list. And he's like, we've put you up for everything. We're doing our best. They were coming from such a positive mindset, right? Like I went, oh my God, I've been said no to every single one of those shows. What am I doing here? if I'm being rejected by everyone, shouldn't I just leave now? And it's the interesting message, isn't it? Because they're like, look how successful you are. Look at the shows that are, that you're, you're up for. And I'm like, no, 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 dude. Look how much of a failure I am. I haven't got any of those. <laughs>
0: choice that we have right to go hey we're in you know to use Brene Brown's term we're in the arena having a crack let's keep going versus I'm not getting anywhere creatively what did that do to you in terms of the message I'm not good enough I'm not what do I need to learn what do I need to improve it stifled me
1: it stifled me big time because you know as an artist to use this analogy you know if you're an accountant and you get someone's taxation wrong you could just have a bad day you know what I mean you just you just flop your numbers it's actually not anything on your accountancy, if you get rejected as an actor, you're like, oh, that's me. You turned me down. You know, like, like I got rejected, not I had a bad day with an audition. <laughs> you know, like it's actually, it's me. It's me because, you know, as engineering, for example, I could just disassociate with me and just do the mathematics on a concrete slab. If i got that wrong, it's not charm. I just got the mathematics wrong on that. But if I deliver a character, I have to put me into that. So if you don't like it, you're actually saying no to me which is why we never read reviews of ourselves because it's like you're kind of ripping into me so I'm just going to keep myself safe from all the reviews artistically I was like my god what's going on but then what I did was I made sure that I did classes I made sure I put myself around actors and I I just kept acting because I'm like there's always something to learn you know there's always something to learn it doesn't matter how good you are we can learn I'm a student of learning I would learn forever I just am absolutely fascinated by learning and so then our next thing I'm, I'm in an improv class i'm doing you know like physical work i'm just trying to getting my mates over to put the kids to sleep my wife and i she's an actress as well we'd have we'd invite our mates to crack of a crack bottle of wine and start doing scenes with each other and mm-hmm. so that kept my teeth sharp while i felt like i was getting rejected all the time and you know kind of look at success like you just need that one gig you know you could be an ad agency copywriter and all your ideas get thrown in the bin <laughs> right, and then all of a sudden one of your ideas gets picked up and the commercial gets made up. And you're like, oh, my God, you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. wearing that thing. And so the way I look at it is like, well, it's lotto and I'm in the ball. I'm a number in the big ball. And mm. if I quit, I take my number out of the ball. And I know for a fact that ball's never going to drop because it's not even in there. But as long as if I'm in there, as long as my little ball yes. is in the big ball, <laughs> Of course it's going to drop. The mathematical probability of my ball coming out sometime is 100%. It will. I don't know when, but I'm guaranteed if my ball's out of the big ball, I'm never going to come out. So I just kept going, just stay in there, chum, just stay in there, just keep that ball in, keep that ball in. And then, of course, it drops. And it drops at that time where you need to learn the biggest lesson about yourself. That is when it drops, right? (laughs) You know?
0: What did you learn when it dropped?
1: that it was worth it because how often as humans do you get to look at yourself and go holy shit I got the big thing I wanted and that scared me and I guess looking at my mum and dad who had to leave the big thing they wanted and start I never necessarily got the sense that they you know because he wasn't my dad's passion he completely changed his career and started something new which was never what he wanted to do and so I felt so sad especially now at the sacrifice he made, and what a man to go, I hate what I do actually. Back in Sri Lanka is what I love doing. And he was at the top of the food chain, right? And so when I got the privilege of going, oh my God, I just, here I am at ABC, or here I am on set for Netflix holy shit, I'm on business class with my family. We're going to New Zealand to shoot Mulan for Disney. You're like, oh my God. The feeling you get is just the eu- euphoria. It's, it's actually a sense of artistic euphoria because of the struggle. That's what it is. If I didn't struggle, then the win would be nothing. It's like whatever, you know, like it's like getting given money for free. Like, what? Well, I didn't work for it. I got it. I'll spend it. Who cares? So the validation, artistic validation is important as well. And when I got that validation from my peers, for my own work, the sacrifices, the mental anguish, you know, I think I'm also susceptible to a low level of depression. And I definitely went through bouts of depression, didn't really know how to handle it. I think one psych kind of offered me medication and I, I knew that was an option. I, I didn't take it because I just didn't think I was there that I needed it, but I was mm. depressed. And I have an amazing wife who can see it and she knows it, and so she was like, look, you know, kind of do this or be this. And sometimes she'll give me a rah rah speech and it works. <laughs> Other times I'm like, I don't want a rah rah speech right now. Like, I just don't. You know, in <laughs> Brene Brown's work, just let yeah. me be uncomfortable with my vulnerability. Like, let me just sit here with it and I'll yes. have it. And I don't want to keep yeah. something. <laughs> but, and then she, she catches that yeah. like, you are vulnerable and it's okay. And I'm just going to allow you to be vulnerable i'm gonna sit next to you and hold your hand or give you a cuddle and just lay there and i'm like that's all i need thank you now i'm getting i'm getting empowered by that i'm getting the juice i need i get to oh man you know like vulnerability is the biggest lesson i've learned in my acting career and it's a life lesson Mm -hmm. it's a career lesson it's a human lesson and that v word scared the shit out of me for so long
0: yeah in some ways because we're almost wired that if you hit success get the thing that we're after then no longer you need to be vulnerable like it'll just be kind of you've done that done the hard yards and now it'll be snow sailing but it's almost you know what you're describing is all of us turns up to all of it right so the rejections and the acceptances We're right there. In the rejections, we're having these amazing times with our colleagues doing improv over a bottle of wine and in the acceptance, we're we're feeling down in the dumps (laughs) and depression shows up as well. Like
1: What I've realised is that it's like we're all going to climb the summit. We want to get to the summit and we all think when we get to the summit, the clouds are going to shine down, the halo is going to come, and it's peace forever. I've done it. I'm going to be happy forever. And very few get to the summit, okay? Like, I'm going to be honest in life. Very few actually make it to that summit. And I'm really lucky and privileged to feel like I've hit summits, you know? But what I've learned when I got to the summit is the clouds don't shine down on you. And you get a momentary reprieve, you might make more money. You might get accepted to a high level of TV shows. You might get more offers than you thought you did before. You audition less and you get you know, accepted more. But that doesn't mean you're happy. That doesn't mean you're peaceful. Actually, a new world of stress comes from that summit because from the summit, you see another summit. But you can't see the second summit from the base of this first summit you're trying to get to. So you get to the top, yeah. you're like, wow, and you're like, oh, my God, another one. And now this is a harder one because now the air is getting thinner, (laughs) less people are getting up there, but now you want it. And next thing you know, you're just spending your whole life perpetually climbing summits. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as, like, where I'm now, I'm like, I just want to enjoy that. And I never did before. It was just such a painful thing I wanted to accomplish. But now when you start to see that, oh, wow, there's this great story a Buddhist monk told me once. There was a van and the van would take them to the top of the monastery. The monastery was on the top of a hill. And they would just like, vroom, vroom, drive up. And they would just sit there and get to the top. And then one day, the van broke down halfway and they had to walk. And you see some of the monks were just like, just cumbersomely walking up. But the eldest monk was just full of vigour, walking up the mountain. The eldest one, the youngest one's like, oh, tired. Like, why is the yeah. eldest one just like caning this hill? And they spoke to him. And he's like, because I'm enjoying the view. I've never seen this view. And it was like, <laughs> Just so grateful and watching what's there that it was giving him energy just to walk up this mountain. I think just knowing that there's a journey in there as well, and half the fun is the journey, as well as reaching the summit.
0: The opportunities that you had while you were based in Hollywood were extraordinary, and and some of those, no doubt, you started to work alongside, and I'll say, people that are kind of really world-class in what they do, actors, directors, everyone who might be on set. Are there any kind of standout lessons that you took away from the chance to be able to and continue to take away from the chance to be able to work alongside people that you might hold up as yeah, you know, being yeah. extraordinary in their field? It was fun,
1: you know. The people that were absolutely extraordinary and at mm. the top didn't turn up stressed. It's the lesser actors that were stressful to work with, you know, because they're, they're wanting to impress Whereas the greats already know they're great. They don't give a shit, they're not here to impress anyone. They just here to have fun. They're <laughs> lucky, they're, ha- they're, ha- they're happy, they're acting. You know, in the teaching, we never really get taught to have fun. We get taught all the million techniques and how to cry and how to rage and how to, you know, and you're like, oh God, I can't cry, but i got to cry right now. And you start squeezing your bloody body for a tear and nothing's coming out, You dry as <laughs> a And you're like, no one can see that you start fake crying. you wish there's an onion in front of you or something. And, When I was working with the greats, oh, my God, how much fun they were having. And I started to adopt that into my own work and just having fun. And and I think also just the kind of fun they were having at failing as well, like that was a huge lesson for me. I think it's accepting. They've just accepted that it's a fail. Like I was at a party and Colin Farrell was there and we had mutual friends and we were sitting there having a whiskey and having a chat and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, I was like, man, what's going on? I was like, oh, just waiting for someone to hire me. Colin Farrell is waiting for someone to hire him. And I was like, wow. And I was at another was a very small Christmas party and um, Keanu Reeves was there and his stepsister and, I and my wife and I were very good friends. So we, we became mates. And we were sitting in his backyard, another chat again, and he starts talking to me about how he feels just, inadequate as an actor he starts talking to me about this project I was doing I did a tv show called no activity with Damon Herriman and Rose Byrne and, and it was all improv there was no script but basically here's how the scene's going to go roll the cameras and you're going to do it and so we had to use all of our like that's acting on another level right because now you you've got yeah, to exactly. control the arc but you've also got to control your acting but you've got no words you've got to create and I was mm-hmm. telling Keanu about that and he was like wait and he just quizzed me so much about what was going on and then I wanted to talk to him about John Wick, and he's like, "No, no, no, bro, I don't want to talk about John Wick. I'm to talk about this because he thought John Wick was just like whatever. <laughs> I'm just boring. Boring. Where's the challenge? And, and it was such an interesting thing to see how he was fascinated by the craft of it, which is what I loved about that guy. Is the, the times I got to spend with him, you could just see how much of a human he was, and he was just really fascinated by the interesting idea of acting. I don't think he was having as much fun with the idea that it wasn't working for him, but that's his own huge life story I'll never never be able to relate to at that level. Colin Farrell was having fun with it, Mm. just drinking a whiskey going, yep, waiting for someone to hire me, drink, drink, drink. (laughs)
0: That's the human connections, right? Like we all love the bloopers, (laughs) which is the epitome of that kind of fun of failing in a lot of ways.
1: And I think also, like, failure, it happens to you. Like, for example, it happens a lot on sometimes stressful TV shows. So when we did Newsreader, some of those scenes can be very stressful, you know, and it's high-intensity scenes, high-intensity stakes, and you'd assume that with this stellar cast that it would be a stressful environment. But Emma Freeman, the director, always kept it so jokey, so relaxed, so... And sometimes we would just all corpse and just laugh our heads off in the middle of an intense scene. And it just went Like someone just let the air out of the pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go back to it and we would find deeper intensity that we couldn't find before. We had to let the pressure cooker out. We all had to kind of fail a bit. We had to laugh. Mm -hmm. William McGinnis had to fart. Something had to happen, right, in the room that made all of us just (laughs) Absolutely laugh our heads off. Then we're coming back in unattached.
0: The circuit breaker, the ability to kind of lighten it and step in. I want to talk a bit about diversity in the film industry. You're in a really unique position to talk about it. Before we hit record, you mentioned when you were in the US, you were working with ABC and a big part of that was that kind of connection to diversity, not only acting, but also in directing. Talk to me a little bit about what that experience was like. And I guess under the guise of like your experience of diversity in the film and TV industry in the US, here in Australia, what else we need to kind of be talking about?
1: Thanks for the question, because it's something that obviously it's personal to me. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up as an actor turning the TV on and not seeing me. So if you're a young Caucasian kind of actor, you turn the TV on and you've got role models the whole time, you know, and you can follow them. You'll follow Russell Crowe. You'll follow Hugh Jackman. And you're like, wow, you started from, you know, somewhere in Sydney and now you're winning an Oscar. Wow. I can do that and you get that wonderful invigoration from a mentor that you feel is in alignment with you for a lot of diverse actors we don't get that in australia we can't follow or traject someone's journey that we feel connected to the only person that i remember was ernie dingo and i had didn't even realize that he was an indigenous brother that i was just like you're brown i'm brown you're on tv i want to be on tv i'm just seeing a brown dude mm. on a lot of tv shows and he's really good and sidebar, I saw him at the Logies last year and I just went over to him and I, like, thanked him. And he was like, what are you doing, bro? Who are you? But I was like, just
0: thank thanks you. for doing what you <laughs> did
1: and being who you are, you know, because I had no one. And to me I think that's oh, it's a misrepresentation, isn't it? Because when you look at your own friend circle, unless you're living in a bubble, we have hugely diverse friends and yet it doesn't represent on television. And I think for me that's the injustice because... You know, when you go to Sydney, Melbourne, all the big, big cities, it's such a cultural hub and, and it's great for different cultures to hang out with each other, you know, and, and chat and learn and, and ideas and share and I'm um, Perth, you know, like we had our Italian mates and all of a sudden I'm like, what are we doing? We're going to go step on tomatoes because you're going to make sauce? That sounds disgusting. Why are we stepping on them? <laughs> 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 well, you know, like all of a sudden I'm, their non-nos are, are making these amazing sauces and my Italian mm. me into that. And next year I'm teaching my Aussie mates or my, you know, Vietnamese friends and my, like, if you come to my house, you're eating with your hand, bro. Don't worry about it. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm, and they're like, I remember actually on, on The Surgeon, which is the Channel 10 TV show we did um, a while ago, they were serving curry under the tent and Justine Clark, who's, like a mentor for me as mm. I was eating curry. I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, Jazzy, this curry is really good. I just can't eat it with a fork and knife. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, I can't. I can't. I feel i like got to eat it with my hand. She's like, do it. I was like, are you sure? And she's like, chum, I'll do it with you. Drops a fork and knife and goes, show me. I started eating with my hand. And then she's like, oh, my God, this is delicious. <laughs> I never knew eating with your hands. <laughs> and at the time, Matt Newton, it was Bert Newton's son, was there. And he's like, what are you guys doing? eating my hands and he's like oh my god my mom and dad told me to root to eat with your hands and next thing the whole cast are eating curry with their hands on a channel 10 tv show and just like having their minds blown and that was such a funny moment for me because you know what i mean like i'm the only diverse person in there but i think we have we have a lot to do i think the good news is that it's getting better thankfully. You know, I think that I know for me in my career, I am getting a lot more opportunities to explore people that aren't just considered brown or...
0: What has changed in your career? And again, you mentioned before around prior to LA, what you were being offered and turning down were those really stereotypical, you know, put an accent on, be Indian, Sri Lankan, and that's all we need of you, versus maybe some of the roles that you're being offered now. What have you seen change in your Um,
1: career i think i started saying no to a lot of stuff and i think that just sends a message back down the chain that i'm not going to kowtow to that you know look early in my career i was saying yes to everything because i just wanted the work i wanted to build my resume i wanted to build my reel you know build my experience just like a lawyer will say yes to any case when they're starting out, but then I'll get to a point where they're like, I'm not, not going to take those cases. I'm kind of done with those. I'm not going to take this, these cases because I get challenged. I think getting validation in America there's something about Australia that I think somewhat appreciates that you'd crack the big one. You know what I mean? And so hmm. I still haven't worked out the psychology of that. I don't think I will, but I just know that. Yeah. What do you reckon, Ali? Like, have you seen that?
0: I have probably on a smaller level. It's almost like. So again, I grew up in small country towns, so did my husband for a little while. We started our business in Darwin and then moved down to the East Coast here and ended up getting a lot more work up in Darwin. I think it was almost like one of ours has made good, <laughs> is the way I want to say it. If someone else recognises it, then we can become proud of it. I don't, yeah, I don't know what the psychology
1: of it is. I think that the tall poppy thing is something, because when I got to America, that tall poppy thing just did not exist. I was at HBO with my writing partner and we are pitching a show to HBO. And I was sitting there and this, my, my writing partner, my producing partner was American. And I got an HBO and you should see me. I was like a kid in a candy store. I'm like, what? And I got my phone out and I went to take a selfie of myself with the HBO sign behind me. And my American friend was mortified. Grabbed the phone he goes, what are you fucking doing? I was like, bro, we're an HBO man, I'm gonna take a photo. And he was disgusted at me. He goes, put your phone down, don't embarrass us. He goes, no, man, you're at HBO because we have something for HBO. We have something for them. Mm. They need us. We don't need them. They need us. So put your phone down. And it was such a huge lesson for me. That's
0: fascinating.
1: Fascinating. About owning your own magnificence. And in Australia we kind of get smacked in the face for owning your own magnificence because you're a bit like, no, a bit too big for your boots, are you? You know, you're a little bit too too Mm. big. And I was kind of like. Oh, man, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, you're going to get the egotistical idiots, you know what I mean? And, yeah, I've met a lot of chest pumpers in America who had no skill and had no claim to their own magnificence because they weren't good at what they were saying they were. But the idea that when you got to America, they just were like, I'm not going to take a meeting with you unless you're brilliant or you at least think you're brilliant. Why would I waste my time? Mm -hmm. And I came back to Australia with a bit of that, where I didn't feel like a second-class citizen, where here I felt like a second-class citizen my whole life. Then in the film industry, you're like a fourth-class citizen. You know what I mean? Because you're like, there's no roles for you, dude. You should be grateful if you get a 50-word up, okay? I'm like, yes, master, thank Mm. you. Whereas in America, they're like, no, 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 no. We need you. we need. And it's interesting as well, because I had lunch with the head of casting at ABC in the US, who was considered at the time the most powerful woman in film and TV, because she was casting everything. And she was Korean. And I was talking to her and I was like, um, hey, diversity, like what's the philanthropic position with ABC? She kind of laughed. She's like, oh, philanthropy, charm, it's economics. You know, it's economics. If we do a white show for white people, we don't make as much money because it's not representative of the world. That's a smaller audience. But if we give shows that depict the real world, which is not just all white, but not all brown either, right, because you're going to limit your audience, it's what's the show that represents the world and it's just diversity. It's a beautiful spread of diverse people. It's not one colour versus another colour. It's an inclusion of colours. Then guess what? We can sell that show to more territories, because there's more representation. We, ABC, the biggest network in the history of the te- of television, make more money. And that kind of thing blew my mind. So when I arrived here, I was like, no, 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 no. Mm. I'm a commodity. I'm an asset. And I'm... See yeah, it that way. See it that way. Because I'm like, look, if I'm on your show, guess what? You can open it up. At least even to Australian audiences. It was like, yeah, yeah, cool. That's, that's when I go out and I call my mates out for a coffee, of course there's ethnic people in there that I see. And thank you for doing a show that shows that.
0: Yeah, it's not just a nice thing to do. There's an economic, commercial, smart strategy that sits behind it. And how can we, as an industry, continue to break through ceilings and change? It's this thing like if you're looking to
1: set up a board for your company, right, You want, to, or you've got a government and you're looking to set up your cabinet, if all you do is just put a bunch of old grey-haired white people, right, as your board or your government, then that's not representative, right? If you put all females, it's not representative. If you put all brown people, it's not representative, right? So when you set a board or you set a government, you're looking to do a nice wide position that represents everyone. That way you're going to get feedback accordingly. So when your board starts to tell you about how the company should be run, you're getting different points of view. A cast is the same thing. You're setting up a government, you're setting up a board, you're setting up a cast. And Their purpose is to reflect back humans. That's an actor's job, is to see yourself through me, see society through us as basically avatars, as mannequins. We put on a different costume for a different, and we're a different mannequin, different avatar. But if you're getting the same style of mannequin or the same style of avatar, (laughs) the message just becomes watered down. But if the type of mannequin keeps changing and you put different things on it, then I think that's really crucial. And that's kind of where I see diversity. It's not a social philanthropic service and look how good we are because we've got a token brown person or a token indigenous. Or It can't be that. It's like look how respectful we are to our audience, that we are appreciating the true state of the world right now. And so we are going to reflect that back in the way we write our characters, the way we cast writers' rooms, the way we set up boards, the way we set up governance to respectfully look at kind of what's
0: happening in our world. And it is all that end-to-end conversation that needs to continue to happen as well. You've got some exciting projects that I know are coming out in, in 2023. Where can people start to see some of your work, the newsreader being one that you mentioned before, an amazing Australian a drama series that was a Logie and actor award-winning show. I understand there's a second season coming out in 2023. Nautilus, a Disney release in the second half coming out in 2023. What else, where people can start to see some of your work?
1: Yeah, look, those are the two shows that I got coming out. I've got another one coming out where I play a semi-regular in. Uh, it's called One Night for Paramount Plus. It's done with with BBC. And um, so, look, there's, I've done a lot of work for ABC, and they've been really lovely to me. There's definitely a a catalogue of work there from a great show called Preppers, which was done with a lot of amazing Indigenous actors um, and the black comedy crew there, which I, I really enjoyed that. And I did that with Uncle Jack before he passed away. And what a lovely, lovely man he was, just absolutely. I mean, the stuff he told me about his life in between stuff, I'm just like, what? And then once he was telling a story and my kids called and I had to say goodnight to them. So I was like, "Hey, sorry, Uncle Jack. I'm gonna say good night to blah, blah, blah. And then I said, "Oh, do you want to say good night to Uncle Jack?" I'm like, "Yeah." And Uncle Jack goes, "Good night, kiddies." And it was like really so sweet. And then every night, hey, call your kids, call your kids. So I quickly call him, "Like Uncle Jack here." Aww. And my kids are like, "I want to talk to Uncle Jack." That's <laughs> like, the best. It's like he was their uncle. Like he was so That's awesome. He was so awesome. Right now, I'm um, also getting into the content creation world. So I've got a bunch of projects with a bunch of producers that that are in development, which is great. I'm. Uh, about to go to Melbourne now and look at EPing of a film over there. So I think I'm leaving in two days. So we got we got definitely a couple of really cool stuff coming up. And and Nautilus will be fun. That's a big Disney thing. That's Disney's um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea remake. And that was a huge couple of hundred million dollar TV show, which we did out in the Gold Coast, your home, where you are, at a Village Roadshow. And also, I'm living out in the country. I'm away from the rat race. I'm six hours south of Sydney, in one and a half acres on the top of a mountain, away from everything. Bought <laughs> a chainsaw. I'm a typical Aussie, <laughs> as they would say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <I'm, laughs> trust me. I
0: can Cut myself. up your firewood for the winter.
1: <laughs> and it's cool because I've got my kids out here in the country. We live out here. You know, my wife is from this area, and it comes with its own challenges. But also it's a kind of fun experience because for me life is about putting myself in interesting places so that when I die at least I can look back at my life before my death and think, holy shit, what a rich, interesting thing I did. I fucked up a lot. I failed a shit ton, but I also reached a lot of summits. And I look back and think I did a lot and that's kind of like what I think the most thing I want to do. And again, dovetailing back to where I came from where your liberties and your liberation was taken away from you. To be in a place like this, why would you not want to exploit every opportunity you've got and just, you know, do everything you can to enjoy yourself? Um, So, yeah, so we'll see what happens after the country. Maybe I'll go back to LA, you know, never know. Kids seem to be enjoying themselves right now, so we'll go on till the next adventure starts.
0: I've absolutely adored this conversation just so many kind of insights and wisdom that yeah I would love to kind of keep the conversation going but I will come full circle and finish with my final question for you and you might have already answered this a little bit but the name of this podcast is called standout life when you hear that term what does it mean to you to live a standout life
1: I'm trying to stay away from cliched words but there's you know what I mean like live a passionate life I don't I don't know you know, I'm an actor. It's this feeling. Like sometimes words are didactic, they're expositional, they confuse things even more. But sometimes you get a feeling in your body and that feeling is so the feeling. You just know it. You just know when you get that feeling. You see someone and you're like, I'm going to fucking marry you. I just feel it. I feel it. I know it. It's there. I don't know how we're going to do it. I'm with someone. You don't to look at me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just, but the feeling is there. And I think a standout life for me as I'm getting older is to start to trust that feeling, to listen to that feeling. It knows. It just bloody knows. It knows when you want it. It knows when you don't. And we will we'll use our head to suppress that feeling. And we'll use our head to just do all kinds of shit to it. And right now, I am just like, my standout life is like knowing that as a little kid, I used to get called all kinds of dumb words, horrible words, which I'm not going to say here, as I ran to be a dancer. And this is what the jocks would call me as I ran. You could use your imagination, right? But I knew the feeling I got in that dance room, the feeling was so me. It was so my peaceful, happy place that I could put up with that. And all the way through my life, I've just followed that feeling. And it's my feeling. It's my thing. No one can take that away from me. No one can tell me it's wrong. It's not their feeling. It's mine. And I've had a lot of people tell me I'm wrong. A lot of people tell me, including my parents and people that are close to me, you shouldn't do it. But I'm like, but your feeling thinks I shouldn't do it. That's your feeling. My feeling does. And now that I have, yeah, my parents are so proud of me and what a beautiful place to be where they're like, it was worth it. All of the pain of owning a quickie mart and all of that shit was just worth it. And so I think for me, I can't explain what the feeling is, but you were smiling your face off when I told you about the feeling. I can <laughs>
0: feel it. I can feel it. Yeah.
1: You know, yeah, that's the sound. Just, just it's that feeling. It's that feeling. Mm. Just find it, know it, trust it.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. I am smiling my face off. So chase the summits, have a chainsaw and follow the feeling. (laughs) I'm up for it. Thank you so much, Tom.
1: My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Ali. It was fun.
0: If you've enjoyed this conversation, then let's keep the conversation going. The main place that I hang out is on Instagram at Pally Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. One of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review Standout Life Podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. And if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of, then please share share it with them or maybe share it on your socials once again thanks so much for tuning in for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take as always this is standout life podcast and i'm ali hill